It is inevitable. It is inevitable that eventually life will bring something your direction that will cause you to ask hard questions. One of the reasons I have appreciated this study of Habakkuk is because we can identify with Habakkuk's questions. At the beginning of the book, we see Habakkuk asking, how long? How long are you going to let this trouble go on all around me? And we see Habakkuk ask the question, why to God? And if all of us are honest, there have been times when we've wondered how long the trouble in our life was going to last. Perhaps you're here today and you wonder how long the the storm you are in is going to last. And we've all found ourselves asking the why question. When something tragic happens, something unexpected, something difficult, we find ourselves wondering why. So we can identify with Habakkuk's questions. Because either we've asked those questions or eventually, it's inevitable, life will cause something to happen that will lead us to ask those questions. But what I want to say to you this morning is this. There is a right way and a wrong way to ask God questions. And the title of my sermon today is, How to Ask God Questions. I want to give you some encouragement from the book of Habakkuk to to instruct you and, and, and help you to understand how you approach God with the very real questions that life will inevitably raise in our hearts. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. One of the minor prophets, not minor in its message, but minor in its size. Only three chapters, and it's minor when compared to the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, those longer books in God's Word. But we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. Now you'll notice at the top of your notes that were in your bulletin that the date is wrong. Last week's date is on there. And the reason is, uh, I had every intention of preaching this message last week. But early last Sunday morning, my wife went into labor with our fourth child. And about 6 o'clock in the morning, I had Claire loaded up, heading to the hospital. And I called Frank and said, Frank, you're on today. You're preaching. And so Frank came in, did a great job. Uh, But we went to the hospital. The baby was born 9.13 Sunday morning. We could have still made the 9.30 service, I guess, but... The baby was, uh, baby was born, Truett, uh, Connor Truett Humphreys, and he is healthy, and uh, Claire is doing well. So thank you for your prayers and your concern, and uh, just everything you've done to support us in that. We are so grateful to God for how he has blessed our family. Now, Connor was due to be here on August 26th, so he came uh, a bit early, and I think the reason is uh, he wanted to be here for football season. That's all... He wanted to make it for the beginning, so he's, so I don't know, he made it. Look with me, Habakkuk chapter 1, would you stand with me this morning in honor of the reading of God's word? 
Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, the Bible says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Let's pray. Father, we need you in this moment. Lord, give us the grace to have receptive hearts, keen minds, and submitted wills. Lord, I pray that you would transform us in this moment, that we would leave this room different than when we walked in today. Have your way, Lord, move with power by your Spirit. We're so grateful for your Word. It is a rock that we can build our lives upon. And we just ask that you would give us a rich time digging in to the treasures of your Word today. Lord, establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Two weeks ago, we began our study of the book of Habakkuk, and I share with you a basic outline of these three chapters. The the outline is simple. The first part of the book is found in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It's, It's question and answer session number one. Habakkuk has some questions for God, and God answers his questions. And then, starting in verse 12 of chapter 1, going to chapter 2, verse 20, we see question and answer session number 2. Habakkuk has some more questions, and God answers him. And then chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's prayer of response to all that God has said. Now you say, wait, what is the book of Habakkuk about? Can you give me a, a summary of the book? Well, if you look there in your notes, Kendall Easley uh, writes this, when Habakkuk asks God questions about the nature of evil and its punishment... God answered by revealing his righteousness and sovereignty. And the prophet then responded with worship and faith. So he asked God questions, God answers. He asked God questions, God answers. And then he says, I will worship you. And so that's what this book is all about. Now, just to remind you of what the first question and answer session was about at the beginning of chapter 1, Habakkuk looks around him at the state of God's people, the nation of Judah, And he sees how wicked God's people had become. They had turned their back upon the Lord. There was great uh, spiritual decline among God's people. And they were mistreating one another. And they were rebelling against God. And Habakkuk looks around and surveys the landscape. And he says, God, how long are you going to let this continue? Aren't you going to intervene to stop all of this wickedness among your people? Will you do something? And God answers him. He says, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I'm making them a new 
world power and I will use them as an instrument of judgment to judge my people to get their attention. That's the first Q&A session, which leads to the next Q&A session, which we're going to study this morning. And what I want you to, to glean from this second Q&A session is, is the, the methodology, if you will, uh, when it comes to asking God questions. I hope you'll learn with me today how you ask God questions. Now, it's a natural thing that questions arise in our hearts. Life is tough. But how do you approach God with those very real questions that you have? So I want to give you four answers to the question, how do you ask God questions? Habakkuk models this for us. Number one, you need to have the right framework. You need to have the right framework. It's interesting to note that In the beginning of the second Q&A session, Habakkuk rehearses what he knows about God. For example, he mentions that God is eternal. Look what it says in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Now, a couple things about that question. First of all, he's reminded of the fact that God is everlasting. God is eternal. In other words, God has no beginning. God has no ending. Before there was ever a universe or a Milky Way galaxy or a man named Adam and a woman named Eve or a Garden of Eden, a Mount Everest, a Pacific Ocean, before any of that was in place, God was there. And God has always been there. There's never been a time when God has not existed. And if you think about that long enough, it will hurt your head. God is everlasting, and and so in the midst of his perplexity about all that's going on around him, Habakkuk's reminded of who God is. God, I know you are from everlasting, and look what he calls God there in verse 12. O Lord my God. Now notice the word Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, it is the, the designation for the divine name of God, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. And so Habakkuk here is not asking God a question as a distant stranger. He has a relationship with him, a covenant relationship. He calls him Lord. He calls him by his divine name. He says, are you not from everlasting. God is eternal. But Habakkuk also remembers that God will preserve his people. Look what he says in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. So God, I look around and I see the wickedness of your people and I'm asking you the question, are you going to do something about it? And God says, well, as a matter of fact, I am. I'm going to send the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment. And Habakkuk says, okay, the Babylonians are really strong, really fierce, really wicked. They destroy everything in their path. That doesn't make sense, God, because I know your people, the people of Judah, they're not going to die. You're going to preserve your people. You made some promises to Abraham that you'd give him a son. And through his son, give him many descendants. And through his descendants, you would one day bless all the peoples of the earth. Now, we know that God fulfilled his covenant to Abraham by sending his son, Jesus Christ. God gave Abraham a son, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. And before you knew it, Abraham's descendants were a mighty nation called the nation of Israel. And about 2,000 years ago, through the Jews, God sent his son, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus Christ, coming through Abraham's lineage, Mary was a Jew, came to this earth and died on the cross for the sins of the world 
and he rose from the grave to defeat death itself so that if anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any background, any ethnicity, if anybody places their faith in Jesus, they can be blessed with salvation. So through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the earth have potential to be blessed. That's the promise. But Habakkuk's saying, God, if you let the Babylonians completely destroy us, that's not going to happen. Your promises will not be fulfilled to bless all the peoples of the earth. So I know we're not going to die, so I don't understand how I can hold on to that promise of preservation for your people, but also understand that you're sending the Babylonians to judge us. I don't know how that's all going to work out. But then Habakkuk mentions that God is holy in verse 13. Look what he says. Are you not from everlasting? Verse 12, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Verse 13, O Lord, you, uh, verse 13, you are you who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So he remembers that God is holy. He's a God of absolute moral perfection, a God of total, unique, moral majesty. And so he's saying, there's a lot of things around me, God, that I don't understand, but you're Lord, you're Yahweh, I know you, and I know you're eternal, and I know you'll preserve your people, and I know you're holy. So I'm going to cling to what I do know. He rehearses what he knows about God. He has a framework of faith. But then notice that Habakkuk expresses his confusion. There's some things he knows, but he's confused about what he sees uh, transpiring all around him. He says there, verse 12, We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You're going to use the Babylonians, the wicked, pagan Babylonians? Look what he says. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You're going to use the Babylonians and let them have victory over your people? I don't understand how that how that works out, God. I don't, I don't, I'm confused by that. How can you use the Babylonians? So think about it like this. Habakkuk, this is almost funny. Habakkuk says, God, are you going to do something about the wickedness all around me? And God says, yes, I am. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, well, you can't do that. I don't, I, that's, that's not the plan I think you should use. He didn't understand why God would use the Babylonians. They're really wicked, he's saying. He says they're, they're, they're more wicked than us, verse 13. He says, how are you going to use the, uh, the, the Babylonians to swallow up the man, the Judeans, more righteous than he? We're not perfect, God, but we're better than the Babylonians. You're going to use the Babylonians to destroy us? He says they're, they're going to completely destroy us. Look what he says in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragon, so he rejoices and is glad. He's talking about the, the Babylonians here. They completely destroy everything in their path. Look in verse 17. Is he then, the Babylonians, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, don't you see that the Babylonians are a wrecking ball? They decimate everything and everybody. And so I know that you're going to preserve your people, but the Babylonians, they're going to destroy us. And then he says this, God, don't you know that they don't worship you? Look in verse 16. Therefore, he, the people of Babylon, he sacrifices to his net. The net is a picture of his strength to, to destroy nations. 
he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. And so he's saying here that the people of Babylon worship their own strength. They don't worship the one true God. They're pagan. They, they, they worship themselves. And Habakkuk is saying, God, don't you get it that the Babylonians are pagan and you're going to use them as an instrument of judgment? Now, now before we look down our noses at Habakkuk and, and think, boy, Habakkuk, you really blew it with these questions. Let's just imagine for a moment that we're praying about America. Would you agree with me that as you look around, things are going in the wrong direction morally and spiritually? Would you agree with that? I don't think I have to convince you of that. We are in a, a moral decline. I would even say we're in a moral freefall in our nation. Rapidly turning our back upon the one true God. So let's say we pray, God, would you do something about the decline of this nation? Would you do something to bring us back to you? And God says, okay, I'm going to raise up a communist nation to conquer America. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, 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 no. That's not what I had in mind. Do you see Habakkuk's struggle here? The people were wicked. He's praying for God to do something about it. And God says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get my people's attention with the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk has this framework of faith, but he's still confused. But here's what I think we can learn from Habakkuk, and this is in your notes. Habakkuk doesn't ask these questions from a rebellious heart. He's perplexed. He does not understand, but he's not rebellious. He calls him Lord, Yahweh. I know you, God. I know about you. I have a framework of faith. He's not asking for a rebellious heart. He's, he's honestly seeking God's truth. He's, he's honestly seeking God's will, which leads me to this principle for you and for me. When we approach God, we should approach him as reverent worshipers, not rebellious accusers. There's a difference. When we have questions for God that life will inevitably bring into uh, our, uh, our hearts... We should not approach God as rebellious accusers. We should approach him as reverent worshipers. We should have that framework of faith that that helps us to ask God questions in their right context. In other words, there's a difference between asking God honest questions and accusing God of wrongdoing. Do you hear what I just said? There's a difference between asking God honest questions and accusing God of wrongdoing. Listen, God never does anything wrong. He's a God of absolute moral perfection. The Bible says in Psalm 119 that God is good and he does good. Everything God does is right. And so there's a difference between asking God questions about the perplexity in your life and accusing him of doing the wrong thing. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. There's a difference between confusion and a refusal to accept God's will. There's a difference between asking God questions and trying to change God's mind. There's a difference. Let me see if I can illustrate that difference for you. Let's just say that there was a judge in his courtroom presiding over a trial. And that judge makes a certain decision about the procedure in his courtroom. And someone stands up in the courtroom and says, Who do you think you are? Now, that probably wouldn't go so well for that person, right? 
that person would probably be held in contempt of court. That judge would not stand for someone challenging his authority in the middle of the courtroom. Well, let's just say that that judge finished a day at work and got into his car and he went home. He pulled up into the driveway and he gets out of his car and he walks into the house and he sits in his recliner just to kind of catch his breath for a moment. As he's sitting in his recliner, his little boy comes running in the room. And he climbs up into his lap. And he says, Daddy, what does a judge do? Now, how do you think that judge is going to respond to that question? I would submit to you, he will respond to the question of his little boy much differently than the the person standing in the courtroom saying, who do you think you are, right? One question was asked out of relationship, the other asked out of rebellion. See the difference there? Of course, he's going to be patient with his son as he he helps him to understand what a judge does, what his career consists of. But when the rebellious accuser stands up and says, who do you think you are? There's no patience for that. It's contempt of court. That's the difference. So when we approach God with our questions, we approach him as reverent worshipers, not rebellious accusers. And the time to build a framework of faith in your life is now. Don't wait until the storm gets here to try to shore up your spiritual life. Build that framework of faith now. In other words, if you're not saved, if you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are far from God. You are lost and in your sins. And if you die in that condition, you will spend eternity separated from God in that awful place called hell. You need to get right with God today. You need to embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. You need that relationship with God because when you follow Jesus, Jesus forgives your sins and brings you into a relationship with his Father, a personal relationship. So now, as you go through life's trials, you know God. You're not a a distant, rebellious accuser. You're a child of God. And as you walk with God and read the word and pray and get involved in church, you learn more and more about his character and his nature and those truths about who God is begin to sustain you when the storms inevitably come. But don't wait until the storm to build your framework of faith. You need to do that now. This summer we were at the beach in Florida and we were staying at a, a condominium right there on the beach, and they, I noticed that I was out on the balcony one day that they had storm shutters for when hurricanes make landfall. Well, I know a little bit about hurricanes. I'm from Florida, and I know that the time to put up storm shutters is not when the hurricane is, is coming on to land. You do it while it's still way out there in the ocean. <laughs> you, you know it's coming. You have time to prepare. So... When you have time to prepare before the wind comes, before it gets dangerous, you put up your storm shutters. That's when you do it, not when the storm is hitting you. So listen to me. Don't wait for the storm to get serious about the Lord. Do it now. Now, God can use storms to get you serious. He can get your attention through storms. I've seen him do it, and that's good. But why wait for the storm when you can build a strong framework of faith now? Habakkuk was confused, Habakkuk was perplexed, but Habakkuk had a strong faith as he approached God. 
with these questions. There's a second principle here as to how you ask God questions. Not only do you need a framework of faith, but you need to get into the presence of God. Get into the presence of God. If you look there in your notes, Habakkuk had the right theological framework, but he still had questions that his framework could not answer. Now, I want you to hear me on this. You can be saved. You have a personal relationship with God. You can be growing in your walk with God, growing in your knowledge of God's truth and His Word. You can be a person that's really clinging to the Lord. And still, still things happen that you don't understand. Things happen that you can't, you can't wrap your mind around. You, you, can't, you can't comprehend what God is doing. Romans 11, 33-36 say, say this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. In other words, you can't, you can't fully comprehend the ways of God. So here's the question. When your questions exceed your knowledge, what do you do next? When you have a a framework of faith, you know the Lord, you know about the Lord, but you still have real unanswered questions, what do you need then? You need to get into God's presence. Look what Habakkuk does in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at, the, at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk answers his questions. Then he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be still and listen for God's reply. Now he mentions there the watch post and the tower. In this day and time, many cities had a system of walls and towers around them to protect against invaders. And interspersed around the city, there would be watchtowers where men would be posted to keep watch of advancing enemies. So apparently, Habakkuk's walking around the city, walking around the wall, and he comes to one of these watchtowers, and nobody's there. He says, I'm going to just be still for a minute. I'm going to stay here at this watchtower and just be in God's presence and let God answer my questions. Habakkuk had a desire. To be in the presence of God. Habakkuk desired the presence of God. Now, can I encourage you? When life causes you to ask questions that you can't answer. When life is perplexing and difficult and unrelenting. Can I encourage you to get alone with God? Counseling is a good thing. I'm a pastor, I do counseling. There are people that are professional counselors, and as long as counseling is done from a biblical perspective, it's a really good, healthy thing. But can I encourage you with this? The first person you need to be in the presence of is not a counselor. When you're going through something difficult, the first person you need to be in the presence of is the Lord God Almighty. You need some on your knees time before God, the lover of your soul. You need Him. You need to be still before Him. Because here's what happens in God's presence. You find answers to life's problems 
in the presence of God. You find answers to life's problems in the presence of God. Over in Psalm 73, turn there with me. Psalm 73, I want to show you this. We see a psalmist with some questions. Let me just kind of catch you up to speed on what these questions are. The psalmist is faithfully trying to, to worship the Lord. And he looks around in Psalm 73 and he says, You know what, I'm, I'm really trying to walk with you, God. And life is really hard. And I look over there and I see some folks that are ungodly. They could care less about the things of God and they have it made. They have everything they want. They're living it up. I mean, their life looks so great. So God, how can I be faithfully serving you and and struggling? And these other folks, these ungodly folks, have turned their back to you and they are thriving. Good question, isn't it? But look what the psalmist says as he deals with these questions in his heart and soul. Look what it says in Psalm 73, verse 16. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I could not wrap my mind around why ungodly people were thriving. And then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, Then I discerned their end. You know what he says? He says, I went to worship. I went to the temple to spend time with God. And when I got there, God gave me the proper perspective about those rich, ungodly people. Yes, their life looks great. But it's all going to end in destruction. Why would I envy somebody that's headed for certain destruction? Why not just be faithful to God no matter how hard life is? Because, you know, in the end, you get rewarded for your faithfulness. But notice the psalmist did not get this proper perspective until he got into God's presence. When you get into God's presence, you will find answers to life's problems. Sometimes God will be gracious and give you the insights you need to to comprehend what you're going through. But here's the second thing. Not only will you find answers to life's problems, you will find comfort through life's problems in the presence of God. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and help, a very present help in trouble. In other words, when you are going through difficulty, if you're his child, God is there. His presence is there. And you may not understand why you're going through what you're going through, but God in his presence will help you through that time. He will comfort you through that hardship. A little bit later on in Psalm 46, he says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still in God's presence, knowing that he is in control. You find comfort through life's problems in the presence of God. I read a story that Robert Louis Stevenson told about a vessel on the sea that was caught in a storm. And the wind and the current and the waves were were moving this vessel dangerously close to a rocky shoreline. And if that, if that vessel hit those rocks, it would be destroyed and the people on it would lose their life. Well, there were a group of people that were down below the deck, anxiously waiting to see if they would make it through this storm. 
And one man could stand it no longer. He had to go look and see what was happening. So he walked up to uh, the top of the deck. And through the wind and the, the waves and the rain, he ran into the pilot house. And he saw the steerman with his hands on the wheel. And that steerman had a, a firm grasp. And the pilot was, was slowly, inch by inch, turning that vessel away from the rocks toward the safety of the open sea. That pilot, steering the vessel, looked up when the man entered the pilot house, and he smiled. The man, who was before very anxious, left the pilot house, went back below deck to talk to the other travelers. And here's what he said to the the anxious travelers below deck. He says, I have seen the face of the pilot. And he smiled. All is well. Can I encourage you when you find yourself in a storm to get alone with God and gaze on the face of the pilot? And if you will just gaze at God you'll be reminded that he's steering the ship through the storm. And you will be reminded, no matter what comes, all is well because God is on his throne. God is in control. God is steering the ship. But you've got to get along with God to see the pilot's face. And so... Wade, how do I ask God questions? You, you have a framework of faith, and then you get into the presence of God. Third, you go to the Word of God. You go to the Word of God. Look what the Bible says back in Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk is at the, the, the tower around the wall, the watch post. He's alone with God. He has questions. He says, God, I, I need some help with this. And look what happens in verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision waits his appointed time. What, what's happening here? Habakkuk was, was at the tower on the wall. He was desperate for God to speak. He wanted God to help him with his perplexity. He wanted God to help him with his very real, honest questions. You know what happens? God graciously spoke to him. It says there in verse 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision. He wanted Habakkuk to write down what he was about to say. Now, question, this is not rhetorical, I really want an answer. If God wants something written down, do you think it might be important? Well, guess what? God has decreed that there be written down 66 books that we call the Bible. God wanted the words we have in this book to be written down. He inspired men to write down what he wanted them to write. He breathed through them, so they were writing down his words, truth with no mixture of error, and then he preserved his word so that we have it today. And if God wanted these things written down, it must be pretty important. And when you find yourself struggling with life's questions, when you find yourself struggling to gain a proper perspective on life, 
get into God's presence and get into the Word of God. God's Word provides perspective. Look in verse 3. He says, Still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastes to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He's saying, Habakkuk, you think that I'm going to send the Babylonians and they're going to, they're going to conquer the Jews, my people, and, and they're going to get away with their wickedness. These pagan, wicked Babylonians are going to just get away with it all. That's not the case. As a matter of fact, we're going to see uh, next week God's plan for the Babylonians. They don't get away with their wickedness. They were wicked and, and ungodly, and God used them as an instrument of judgment, but they still had to be called to account for their own ungodliness. And God was going to punish the Babylonians too. But it wasn't going to happen right then. Habakkuk wanted to see it right then. But here's how history uh, played out. We know that God's full judgment on Judah through the Babylonians would not come until 586 B.C. And his full judgment on Babylon would not come until 539 B.C. when the Persians were raised up by God to overthrow the Babylonians. Now listen, this is what Habakkuk was struggling with. A delay of judgment does not mean an absence of justice. I'll say it again. A delay of judgment does not mean an absence of, judge, of justice. We look around at our world and we see people that are getting away with all kinds of things, right? Everywhere we look, we see wickedness. We think they're just getting away with it all. No! A delay in judgment never means an absence of justice. In the 19th century, a Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice John Gibson said this, The wheels of justice turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. God's justice will be served. No one gets away with anything. Our only hope is to have all of our our sin and our wickedness forgiven by Jesus. That's our only hope. Because everything that has not been forgiven by Jesus will be judged by holy God. And Habakkuk needed to be reminded, he needed that adjusted perspective. You see, God sees the big picture. All we see is our our limited fragment of our little corner of the globe during our brief moment in time on this earth. God sees it all. And when we get into the word of God, it adjusts our perspective. And so here's my pastoral encouragement to all of you here today. Since God has written down his word and God's word helps us through difficulty, we need to systematically read all of God's word. Not just the familiar parts, not just the easy to read parts. We need to systematically read all, everyone say all, all of God's word. And I want you to know that if you don't have a plan to do that, it won't get done. I have a a, a little card I carry around with me in my Bible. It's the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. And it takes me through the entire Bible uh, day by day so that I read through the Bible in a year's time. I read from four different places uh, every time I read God's Word. And I systematically go through the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm reading all of God's Word. And it it has meant so much to my spiritual life. It really has. As a matter of fact, I would say there's nothing I've done more critical than reading through God's Word every year. 
that has helped me in my faith. Nothing. And I want to encourage you to systematically read God. You can, listen, you can go to Google and type in Bible reading plans and you'll see pages of pages of pages of different plans you can use to make sure you read the entire counsel of God. I talked to a church member recently and she told me that her mother has made it a practice to read through God's word every year, the entire Bible every year. And a few years ago, she asked her how many years in a row she had read through the Bible. She said, 35 years. And that was several years ago, so she's knocking on the door 40 years in a row, reading through the Bible every year. Do you think that's helped this lady? There's a statement that says, A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. If you get into the Word of God and read it and study it every year, the entire counsel of God, your Bible may start looking worn, but there will be a spiritual strength in your life like you've never experienced before. Get into the Word of God. God spoke to Habakkuk, and Habakkuk was desperate for God's Word Warren Wiersbe says, when you behold the glory of God and believe the word of God, it gives you faith to accept the will of God. There's one more thing I want to share with you, and we'll be through. How do do you ask God questions? Well, you have to have the right framework, a framework of faith. You need to get into God's presence, you need to get into God's word, but fourth, you need to learn to cast your cares upon God. Why was Habakkuk and the watchtower? Why was he standing there waiting for God? Because he knew he needed God's help. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we are called to cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. God wants our concern. He wants our trouble. He wants our anxiety. You see, life is too big, too complex, and difficult for us to handle in our own strength and wisdom. Can I get an amen? Too big, complex, and difficult. And there are going to be times in life, even if you have strong faith, that you will have no answers. You'll have questions, but you won't have answers. And this side of heaven, you may never get the answers to your questions. Even if you are walking with God, You know the word of God. You're in the presence of God. You have a a growing faith in the Lord. Even then, there will be questions you can't answer. So what do you do then? What do you do when you still have lingering questions that are weighing you down with anxiety? Peace comes when you give your problems to the Lord. You know what you do? You cast your cares upon him. Joey read the passage earlier, Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you give your, your 
concerns, your anxieties, your questions, your hurt, your trial. When you give it to God, he takes it and he replaces it with peace. What a deal. So when you find yourself with questions that you can't answer, just cast it upon the Lord. I love this quote from James Montgomery Boyce. He writes, Suppose you have stopped to think. Suppose you have gone back to basic principles. Suppose you have tried to apply these to the specific problem that is confronting you. What should you do if you are still as puzzled as you were at the beginning? Should you give up? Should you go back to withdrawing or repudiating what you had professed before? Not at all. At this point, you must leave the matter with God. In other words, you must say, Lord, I've done everything I know to do with this problem. I have faced it on the basis of everything I know, and I still don't understand it. From here on, it's your problem, not mine anymore. That is what God wants you to do. He wants you to make your problems his problems because he knows that that then you will grow in faith and your knowledge of him will, will deepen. In time, God will give you a proper answer to the problem you are facing. God wants you to make your problem his problem. He said it. Cast your cares upon me, right? In prayer. God... I, I don't have the answers. I don't understand. I'm hurting and the hurt's not going away. God, this is your problem. I'm placing it in your hands. It's yours now. Listen to me. When you make your problems God's problems, he makes his peace your peace. That's a good deal. When you make your problems his problems, he makes his peace your peace. And so, understand that Life is inevitably going to lead us to a place in our life where we ask God honest questions. How long? Why? Other questions. And we're not always going to understand the ways of God. So we come to that place where our understanding is less than our pain. We cast our cares upon God. Because He cares for us. It's inevitable. Life's going to bring something into your sphere that's going to cause you to ask hard questions. There's a right way and a wrong way to ask God questions. 